are you doing? How are you feeling? I mean, they're not getting like, you know, weight, blood pressure, th but I'm taking my blood pressure at home. But the normal things that they would do in a checkup, they're basically just asking questions. And if you don't answer the question right, then they come after you. But Okay. Well, good morning, church family, on this first Sunday morning in May. Not quite the May that we thought we were going to have, and it certainly hasn't been the April that we thought we were going to have, but uh, God is sustaining and God is strengthening and God is using so many people during this time, and I hope that you've been keeping up with how to pray for our doctors, our nurses, the folks that work in the funeral home, our government officials, the coroner, all these people that are on the line every day for us. And they're serving our community. They're serving us. And today I want to begin a series going through the book of Mark on the servant king, Jesus as the servant king. I think it's important for us to remember that Jesus was a servant, and he said, if you want to be great, you serve. And so this morning, we're going to begin, and we're literally going to go all the way through Mark chapter 1. It's a lot of verses, and so we're going to hit this fast, and we're going to hit it hard, but I want to give you some handles in Mark chapter 1 about how we serve and this message is entitled, The Beginning of the Gospel, which is the first sentence in the book, The Beginning of the Gospel. Now, the, the Gospels are uniquely different, and yet they are the same. It would be like having a reporter standing on each corner of an intersection describing an accident as the way they see it from their perspective. Yet, this book is designed and written by the Holy Spirit of God who's giving them the reminders, who's God-breathed the Word. And yet, they all had a different target audience. They had a different way of expressing certain things. So, let me just kind of give you a quick highlight here. Matthew deals with the royal lineage of Christ. That's why he starts with begat, 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 begat. And I mean, some of us can't even name our first cousins, much less all of this. But the historical record of the people of God, how Jesus came through the line of David. So he's writing to a Jewish audience primarily to say, you're looking for your Messiah? Here he is. In the Gospel of Luke, he deals with the humanity of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus, and he talks about him largely as son of man. Now, why did Luke take that angle? Because he was addressing the Gnostics and those who said he wasn't really all man, and so Luke deals with this Gnostic issue and calls him the son of man. 
In the Gospel of John, he is obviously called the Son of God. He deals with the deity of Christ. And in Mark, he deals with him as a servant king. He's a, he's a ruler who came to serve, and he's a servant who rules. This book of Mark is split almost in the middle between those two understandings. Ray Stedman said, it is the one gospel of the four which is aimed at a Gentile ear, which is most of our ears. Now here's what's phenomenal about the gospel of Mark. Except for a few verses, Mark's gospel is found almost in its entirety in Matthew and Luke. That's a trigger because it tells us it was the first gospel written. And it was a source, a reference source for Matthew and Luke as they were putting together their gospels because Mark wrote down what Simon Peter dictated to him, what the stories that he told him. And so this is authentic eyewitness account written down through the hand of Mark. It is an announcement. In some ways, the Gospel of Mark is like a theological pamphlet. So you have these longer books of the Gospels, Matthew and Luke and John, and then you have this concise book, the Gospel of Mark. Here's the key verse. <clears throat> the key verse is Mark 10, 45. Uh, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life, not just to serve, this is important, and to give his life, a ransom for many. Jesus came to serve, that calls us to serve. Now it's very possible and probable that some of the disciples had already been martyred for their faith. Probably James, who is the head of the church in Jerusalem. Maybe some of the others, maybe that's why we don't hear about them as much. They could have been early martyrs in the faith, but we're in somewhere around 50 to 65 AD, there's, there's a little gap there that the church needed encouragement. We're now 30 years removed from the earthly ministry of Jesus and the church, these new believers, this first generation of believers need to know the stories. They need to know the story. They need to know the background. And so Jesus comes to serve and to be a ransom for many. We are called to serve. We are servants, not celebrities. There are no celebrities in the kingdom of God. There's only one king that is worthy of honor and worship, and that's Jesus. And so we're not celebrities, but this, this, this just to tell you that God really wants us to serve, the noun form of serve is found 500 times in the Bible. Mark is describing past events as if it's in the present tense. And what you will see in this gospel is the word immediately or suddenly. It appears 41 times in the gospel of Mark. And if my memory serves me correctly, seven of those times are in this first chapter. Immediately or suddenly. So here's the declaration, which is the sermon title. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news. The good news is Jesus is the gospel. The good news is that the gospel is Jesus. Jesus came to bring good news that man could be saved from his sin. At least nine times in Mark's gospel, you see him called Jesus the Son of God. 
Mark wants us to be clear of who he is and why he came. He's presenting him the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But then he rolls right into John the Baptist. So we meet John the Baptist in verses 1 through 8, who, who was the, the prophesied forerunner of Messiah. One would come that would announce before the Messiah came. John is that person. He quotes Isaiah. He quotes Malachi. He's a prophet. I mean to tell you, John is one tough dude. We need prophets today. I'm not talking about foretelling the future. I'm talking about the kind of prophet that John the Baptist was and the Old Testament prophets were. There was foretelling. They were speaking the truth. And so John shows up with this prophetic voice and he doesn't stutter about what he expects people to do in their relationship with God. He's got this uncompromising message that rubs everybody a little raw, but again, the people are responding to him. He, he's down by the Jericho, and people are coming from Jerusalem, religious leaders, scribes, all kinds of common people are coming there to hear John the Baptist preaching and speaking. L look at his message. First of all, his message was confession. Confession. Verse 5, confessing their sins. Literally, it means to confess out, to speak out, to say verbally, I'm making a confession. I'm putting my name on the line. Then there was repentance, preaching a baptism of repentance. Repentance has to do with turning our lives around and finding in Christ a pardon and the cancellation of the sin debt that we could not pay ourselves. Thirdly, his message was baptism. This was a visible sign of what was happening on the inside. I do not believe that the Bible teaches that baptism is the way we are saved or it is in addition to our confession. It is a physical witness on the outside of what God has done with us on the inside. And so when we're baptized, the Greek word means to dip or plunge or immerse. It doesn't mean to sprinkle. It means to dip or plunge or immerse. And every time you see baptism used, it's, it's people that are older. It's not babies. And so John is preaching baptism. Now, why is this important? Because to baptize a Jew as a sign of repentance was a radical, radical change from custom. So Christianity, if, it's, if the message of John is confession and repentance and baptism, then Christianity is personal, but it's also public. It's not just, well, I just keep my faith to myself. I just mind my own business. No, Christianity is a personal decision, but it has public consequences. Jesus always calls on us to declare and to demonstrate our faith. Now look at the Christ. We've seen John the Baptist. Now let's look at Jesus Christ, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Here we go. Immediately coming out of the water, he saw the heavens open and the spirit of the dove descending upon him and a voice, so he saw and he heard, 
and a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. And immediately, the Spirit, right after that, I mean, no time to celebrate, right after that, the Spirit impelled him to go into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. <clears throat> so Jesus shows up. John baptizes him. Jesus insists that John baptize him. Jesus didn't need to be saved. This was not a profession of faith. This is why Jesus insisted on the baptism. Number one, it was an act of obedience. It was an act of obedience. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 15 says, to fulfill all righteousness. Secondly, it was an act of identification with those he came to save. It was an act of identification. Remember, when we get to Acts chapter 2, at Pentecost, they were baptized. Repent and be baptized. Why? To identify that you have become a follower of Messiah. These Jews that had gathered from Pentecost have now come together, professed faith in Christ, and they are making a public declaration of their identification that Christ is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Then it's verification. It was verification of John's ministry. John wasn't just some guy in some sideshow trying to draw a crowd. It was a verification that John was the forerunner to Jesus as the Messiah. And it was an act of affirmation. The spirit and the voice in verses 10 and 11. The spirit and the voice is God's good housekeeping stamp of approval. What he was approving, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, is the first 30 years of his life. He's saying, my son has prepared himself, has lived sinlessly, he's come to baptism, now it's the beginning of his ministry, and the dove descends and the father speaks and it's affirmation and identity with Jesus that he is the Son of God. Now, when the Spirit descended, it does not mean that Jesus became God in that moment. He was all man and all God the minute he came out of the womb. He was all God in the womb and all man in the womb. But he had always been all God and all man. It doesn't mean that, that God said, now you can be God too. Because that argument would lead you to when Jesus was on the cross, that the God part of him left. No. He was all God and all man all the time. The Spirit descended. This would be like the Old Testament kings being anointed with oil. Jesus was anointed with a fresh power from on high because this was the first step of a public ministry. Apart from the one time when he spoke and dazzled the people in the temple when he was 12 years old. This is the beginning of his public ministry. And the thing we know <clears throat> about the Spirit descending, it is always associated with power. Anytime you see the Spirit descending or the Spirit falling, and that's whether it's in the Bible or in a revival, it is always associated with an infusion of fresh power. What Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, you shall receive power with, from the Holy Spirit 
when he will come upon you. We need that power today to minister, to serve. We can't serve in the energy of our flesh because we'll just get tired and quit or we'll get angry at the people that don't appreciate us. We need that power to serve God. Then there's the temptation, verses 12 and 13. Jesus went to the wilderness and was tempted by Satan. He was immediately impelled. The Spirit forced him out, drove him out. No time for a celebration. This wasn't optional in God's economy. He was, it, this was initiated by the Spirit, not by Satan. Now, he's already in the region because Jews believe that demons dwelt in the wilderness, and this is the area west of Jericho. In fact, if you go to the old, original Old Testament Jericho or the new city of Jericho today, you, you can see what is often called the Mount of Temptation. Jesus was driven there. Why? 1 John 3, 8. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. In the Old Testament, they went into the wilderness so that God could teach them and humble them. And God tested them to show them what was in their heart, whether they would obey the commands or not. Now, that's important with this. They were there for 40 years for God to teach them and to humble them and to test them and to see whether or not they would obey the Lord. Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days and he was victorious because every temptation was met with quoting scripture. Why the wilderness? Why is this noted here? Well, Ray Stedman said, God chose the wilderness because the desert is a picture of us, of our dry, empty, barren, weary, bored, and distraught lives. It's also a, a time in the wilderness, I think because of this, because typically after great highs, there comes a test. You know, after the Mount of Transfiguration, they go to the valley and they can't cast out the demon. After great magnificent moments in our lives we oftentimes when we're drained when we're tired find ourselves in the middle of a test we talked about this uh, a couple of weeks ago with the, the students on uh, on wednesday night as they're going through the story of elijah that here's the implication of this temptation that there were 40 days of continual testing that led to these three final temptations 40 days of testing he was hungry he was there with the wild beast the angels ministered to him but it says he was tempted by satan which is a present tense participle meaning he was tested by satan repeatedly over and over satan is a personal adversary he's an antagonist and that word satan is used 35 times in the New Testament, we are in a battle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we are tempted to cave in. We are tempted to collapse. We can come off a high and before we know it go, I cannot believe that I did that. Why? Because tests sometimes come after our greatest victories. Look at the ministry of the Messiah. First of all, his message. This is in the note sheets, by the way. Uh, that are available uh, on the website. 
Verse 14, now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus came preaching. He didn't come to start a political revolution, which some wanted Messiah to do. He didn't come to stop, start a social justice program which some wanted to do. He didn't come just to have a healing ministry. He came to preach, repent, and believe in the gospel. The message of John was the message of Jesus. John was the forerunner. Jesus says the same thing, repent and believe in the gospel. And he went, it says, he came into Galilee. So he's down at Jericho, down below Jerusalem. He journeys up from Jericho, past Jerusalem, up into the northern Galilee. Now, some of you have been to Israel with us, but if you're in Israel and you're ever sitting in a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, this is what you understand. If you spread your arms out like this, facing north toward the sea, uh, on the Sea of Galilee, 75% of the ministry of Christ happened within where you can see. 75%. He's in the northern part of the country. Now, what fascinates me here is that he moves right from the temptation into, into verse 14. Now, he, he came to Galilee. He summarizes one year of ministry in two verses. These two verses, 14 and 15, summarize an entire year. So Mark is immediately, I mean, he's moving through it. You can almost see Simon Peter here because Peter is like, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's do this, let's do this, let's do this. I mean, P Peter was impulsive. You can almost see it in the way that he's dictating this to Mark to write down. The kingdom of God is at hand. That phrase is used 14 times in the gospel of Mark. So here's his initial ministry. Somewhere between verses 6, 15 and 16, a year has passed. Now, that's hard for us to grasp because we read this and think, well, it was Monday and then it was Tuesday and then it was Wednesday and it was Thursday. No, we only have a handful of days in the three-year earthly ministry of Jesus that are actually recorded for us no matter which gospel you use. So there's a day in here in verse 16, and he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, and he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net, in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately, there we go again, immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending the nets. Immediately, he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and they went away to follow them. They went to Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach they were amazed at his teaching for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes now here's what you need to know Capernaum was, was a fishing village there were fishing villages along the northern side of the Galilee but but this was a significant city it could have well been 1,000, 1,500 people that lived there at the time. So when they get off the boats, it's not that far of a walk to get to Capernaum. So look at what he does when he's there. 
He ministers to all kinds of people. And I'm just going to give you some quick points here on the kind of people he ministered to. Verse 21, he ministered to the members of the synagogue. He entered the synagogue and began to teach. And what happened? Verse 22 says they were amazed at his teaching. They were astonished. That word can even mean prolonged shock. It was like a punch in the face. They had never heard anybody teach like this. I mean, they, I mean if they'd had an empty pulpit, they would have wanted to call Jesus as their rabbi. He was teaching as one having authority, unquestioned authority. Jesus wasn't stuttering or wavering on what he was saying. Now, here's why this is important. Scribes spoke from authority. Jesus spoke with authority. They spoke from authority. Jesus spoke with authority. So he's talking to the members of the synagogue. In verse 23, the man with the unclean spirit who, who cried out. This, this word unclean spirit used by Mark and, and the word demon are really interchangeable. And I would encourage you, don't see a demon under every rock and don't ignore the fact that there is demonic activity. There's a balance here. This man had an unclean spirit and he cried out. Verse 28, immediately after, he, after Jesus, in six words, cast out this demon, immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. Now, he, in verse 30, he's ministering to Simon's mother-in-law. Simon's mother-in-law. And in verse 33, the city is gathered. So he's talking to the people in the city, in the town. He ministered in all kinds of places. I mean, he wasn't in a box. Verse 22, he's in a synagogue. Verse 29, he's in a home. Verse 33, he's on a doorstep. And verse 40, he's on the roadside. I mean, he's everywhere. And he's teaching with authority, and he's acting with authority. But now we come to this little pause about these guys that he chooses to follow him. He ministers through people that would surprise us. I mean, if we were going to start a worldwide movement, uh, we'd get a banker, we'd get an economist, uh, we'd get a, a, somebody with a degree in logistics, uh, we would get somebody in transportation. We, we would find the best of the best. We would do what the president is doing right. He surrounded himself with medical experts. Smart thing to do. What if he had chosen me? Everybody in the country would be saying, well, what does that guy know about this? What does he know about the coronavirus? So here are two sets of brothers, four fishermen, and he comes to them and he says, follow me. This is an invitation with the force of a command. It's like, hey, follow me. Come on now. So somewhere in this year that we're missing, Jesus has been watching them. People have been following Jesus, but now we're seeing this, it's time to leave your boats and to drop your nets, and I'm going to make you fishers of men. What would be the difference? Why would that ring in their hearts? Because as a fisherman, you catch a fish that is alive, but it's going to die. 
as a fisher of men, you catch people that are dead in trespasses and sin, and they come alive and become children of God. Immediately they left their nets. <laughs> I, I love this immediately. Jesus didn't have the choir singing 30 verses of just as I am until he wore them out. He made one statement, he called them to make a decision, and they responded. They cut the cords, they left their nets, and they went and followed Jesus. Now look at the miracles of the Messiah, verse 29. We've already covered uh, briefly him casting out the demons. So in verse 29, uh, he came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever. And immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand. And the fever left her and she waited on them. Uh, just a thought here. While we would all like to see more people healed... Jesus could heal with a word or with a touch. But to save us, he had to die on a cross. He had to shed his innocent blood to cover our sin. I would love to say that everybody's going to be healed. Everybody's not going to be healed. Somehow we all have to get to heaven. But everybody can come to know Jesus through the blood, through the gospel, the beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. She's bedridden. He heals her immediately. Verse 32, when evening came, small town, everybody's talking. When evening came, about the, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city had gathered at the door, and he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons and he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. He healed many. He effected a cure. He cast out many demons. He exercised authority. Now, these people are showing up. They're just showing up at this house. And you've got to understand, a house in Capernaum in the first century was about the size of a walk-in closet. It wasn't much bigger than that very small and these people hundreds of them are starting to stream to this house and the greek indicates it's a steady stream but there's no indication here that they believe that he was messiah that he was the son of god the indication is they wanted healing and there are a lot of people that just want to use jesus and then go back about their business and so when you study the miracles and the healings of Jesus, oftentimes you'll see him warning them, don't go back to your old ways. You see that in John chapter 9. Now drop down to verses 40 through 45. The healing of the leper. Side note, Matthew tells us that this healing took place immediately after the Sermon on the Mount. Now lepers were unclean. There were serious consequences to leprosy. It was a dreaded disease, a horrendous disease. Leviticus 13 through 15 tells us that if you were a leper, you were cut off from community, from family, you were isolated, you couldn't go to the synagogue, and you had to shout, unclean. Now, as I was studying this, this amazed me. If you were a leper, 
you are not to get within six feet of somebody else. Social distancing all the way back 2,000 years ago. Social distancing. A leper had to shout they were unclean. I'm carrying the leprous disease, and they had to stay six feet away. And nobody, nobody, nobody would touch them. The other interesting note is if you were downwind of them, you had to be 100 feet away. 100 feet away. Verse 40, the leper says to Jesus, this is an amazing statement. If you are willing, the, the underlying thought in that statement of this helpless leper is if this doesn't violate some plan that God is working out in my life, will you make me clean? Now there's a healing principle. And there's an eternal perspective principle. If you are willing, Lord, in other words, it's not name it, claim it. It's not on demand. What the leper said, who knew more about God than some people today who have 2,000 years of church history. What the leper said is, Lord, if you're willing, I'm asking you to heal me. If that doesn't violate some plan that you have for my life in and with this leprosy. That's some deep water. And what does the scripture say? Jesus was moved with compassion. And what did Jesus do? He did what no one else in the nation would have ever done. Not this man's mother, not his wife, not his children. Nobody, nobody would have done this. Jesus touched him. He reached out, moved with compassion, and touched him. He took hold of him. He took hold of him. Holiness touched the unholy. Why did Jesus then, after he healed him, I mean, that would seem to be enough, why did he say, go tell the priest? Because it was to prove that Jesus was the Messiah because Isaiah had predicted that the Messiah would heal lepers. I think, I may not be right on this, but I think the last time we see a leper healed in the Old Testament is with Elijah. Is with Elijah. But that, I may be wrong there. But let's look uh, back up now to verse 35 and let's look at the Messiah's strength. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. And Simon and his companions searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby, so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. If you will look at the, toward the end of verse 35, the word praying, and toward the end of verse 38, the word preach, and write down in the margin Acts chapter 6, the calling and the setting aside of the deacons. The apostles didn't need to forsake prayer and the preaching of the word to wait on tables. Their service to the church, the first church in Jerusalem, was to pray and to preach the word. That had to be their priority. That was Jesus' priority, prayer and preaching of the word. Here's why you need to really 
mark this. Interruptions will come. People will demand our time and attention. We have to prioritize time alone with God. On this, after this incredibly busy day of healing, of calling the disciples, this exhausting day, Jesus did not push the snooze alarm and say, Lord, I'll get back with you later. I'll, I'll spend time with you later. Stephen Chapel says, the pulse of our spiritual lives is kept on our knees. You see, serving didn't mean that Jesus lost discernment, and it shouldn't mean that we lose discernment. The person who is always available isn't worth much when they are available. You have to have time alone. You have to have time to yourself. You have to have time to rest. You have to have time to reflect. I, I want to suggest to you that this was a temptation through the disciples to say, hey, Jesus, let's, let's make hay while the sun's shining. Let's, let's ride this wave of popularity. There are so many people that want to see you. Let me have your calendar, Jesus. I want to fill it up with events, with miracles, with meetings, with healings. I, I want to, Jesus, let's capture this time because, you know, you may not be a hide item forever. You know what that is? That's letting the good take the place of the best. It's not just the good or the better. It has to be the best. We have to learn to guard our hearts or we won't guard our time. Someone else's lack of planning should not create a crisis for me. Because somebody else is not spending time with God and wants me to answer all their questions rather than reading the Bible themselves, shouldn't create a, oh, i got to stop. i got to stop right now and deal with this. There are times to do that, but in a prayed-over environment, there are times when you say, I can't do that right now. I can't answer that right now. I, I, I've got other things I have to focus on right now. Someone else's sense of urgency should not override my priorities. So, if you're spending time with God in prayer, Jesus went off, got away from his disciples, his followers, and he got away to pray. And when he was interrupted, he didn't say, okay, let's go do all of what you're asking me to do. He said, let's go somewhere else so I can preach the gospel because all these folks want is me to continue to be the healer and the miracle worker, but that's not the ultimate purpose for my life. I came to preach good news. I'm the Messiah. You never see him letting other people's priorities become his priority. So learn to say no. It's easier than learning Greek. Learn to say no. And let me give you three final thoughts. In a time of panic, pray. In a time of panic, pray. Secondly, take your cares to Jesus. Take your cares to Jesus. Don't run around like a chicken with your head cut off. 
you see, I won't take my cares to Jesus if I'm not praying. And if I'm praying, I learn to take my cares to Jesus. And then finally, if you're not saved, turn your heart to God. Embrace him as the Lord and Savior. Embrace him as the one who can take away the sins of the world. Down at the bottom and at the end, you'll see how you can connect with us with a next step. Either to understand what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, the gospel, the good news, or how you can renew your commitment to Christ, or you can just ask for prayer. We would love to connect with you if we could, and I want to ask you to continue to join us on this journey, this rapid journey through the Gospel of Mark as we see the urgency of Jesus to tell the world that he's the hope. He's our hope. He's my hope. He's your hope. May God bless you.